and welcome to RN. I'm Tom Switzer and you're on Between the Lines. Now on the show today, the Saudi columnist Jamal Khashoggi. He was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. He wrote for the Washington Post editorial page. I'll speak with the newspaper's opinion editor and longtime editorial writer, a man who knew Khashoggi personally about the murder and the international fallout. And later on... McMahon in office knew that Australia had to deal with the problem of the People's Republic of China, whether or not to grant diplomatic recognition. He was, however, holding fast and thinking that he should follow the United States' lead, in spite of the fact that there were considerable and repeated warnings that the United States was not going to tell Australia what it was doing, it would inform Australia. And so when Whitlam went to China in July 1971 and met with Zhou Enlai, McMahon came out and said straight up, in no time at all, Zhou Enlai had Whitlam on a hook and played him as a fisherman plays a trout. That's Patrick Mullins, author of a biography of former Prime Minister Bill McMahon. Stay with us for that. Well, it's been a month since Jamal Khashoggi was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Are we any closer to knowing who ordered the hit on the Washington Post journalists? What role did the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman play? And what does the controversy mean for the Middle East and US policy towards Riyadh? Fred Hyatt is the editorial page editor of the Washington Post, and he was a colleague of Jamal Khashoggi. Hi there, Fred. Hi, Tom. How are you? Very good indeed. Look, first of all, sympathies for your loss. Uh, You lost Charles Krauthammer earlier this year, as you well know, my favourite columnist. But also, congratulations for your many editorials and articles that you've published on Khashoggi during the past month, mate. Well, thank you. We are determined that uh, uh, the attention be paid that a, a monstrous crime like this merits. Are we any closer to determining the truth about what's actually happened here? Well, uh, that's a good question. Certainly, we've seen the Saudis go through various versions. Their first story to us and to the world, which they held on to for a couple of weeks, was that Jamal had uh, walked into the consulate at 1.30 on that Tuesday afternoon four weeks ago and had walked out half an hour later. They insisted that any other uh, version was a slander against them. And we kept saying, okay, well, show us, you know, show us the, the tape of him walking out, show us the paperwork he filled out while he was there. And of course, there was nothing. So then they said, uh, oh, uh, yes, in fact, he did die in the consulate, but it was, you know, result of a brawl. It was accidental. And then that evolved into, no, actually, it was a premeditated murder. So our question is, okay, who premeditated it? Let's have the truth, and that's the step that so far uh, they refuse to take. Yeah, but Erdogan, the Turkish president, he's promised he'd deliver the naked truth about all this. Has he delivered? He has not. You know, certainly the Turkish authorities have put out a lot of information, which has helped this from being a total cover-up. But um, they seem to have more information than they are willing to make public. And, you know, our point of view at the post right now is just put it all out there this is not a mystery of the sherlock holmes variety people in the saudi government know what happened people in istanbul seem to say they they know what happened and at this point the trump administration may have a pretty good idea too so there should be full transparency and 
whoever ordered the murder, and if it was the crown prince, he should be held accountable. You know, the world should know. Now, a few weeks after his death, you published Khashoggi's last column about the regime in Saudi Arabia clamping down on the internet. I think that was the column. Do you have any way of finding out how widely read his columns have been in the broader Middle East, but particularly in Saudi Arabia, whether they be in English or Arab-speaking areas? So we have translated that column into Arabic and published it in both English and Arabic. We've done the same with a number of our editorials, and we're finding that they're getting a lot of readers in the region. Saudi Arabia's been the number one country for most of them, followed by Britain and then other countries in the Middle East. Um, And we're determined to keep doing that. It's partly what Jamal was really pushing for uh, at the end of his his life. He was a journalist, and he left his country because he felt he couldn't do his work there anymore. And what he wanted was for there to be an open debate in Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, in Lebanon, in these countries. You know, one of the really sad things about this is the idea that the Saudi regime would see him as an enemy, when in fact, he was rooting for their success. But he thought the reform agenda that the crown prince says he wants is not going to be successful if you don't allow other voices to be heard. And so we're determined to live up to that and to publish other voices and to publish them in Arabic when it's appropriate, Turkish, Farsi, whatever we can do to help a useful civil debate in countries where the governments don't allow their own media to host that kind of debate. Yeah, we're doing an international service because, as as you've argued time and again in the Post, there's no real public debate in the police state in Saudi Arabia. My guest is Fred Height, the longtime editorial page editor of the Washington Post. Fred, the consequences. How much might the U.S. have to lose if its relationship with the Saudis is ruptured? I mean, your critics will say there's the oil, arms deals, and the war on terror. Uh, Let's start with the oil. Isn't that a major concern? You know, it's a concern, not so much, a lot less of a concern for the United States than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago, first of all, because the United States is now the world's biggest oil producer. Now, that's not to say it doesn't matter. Saudi Arabia can affect the price of oil around the world, and particularly now with the Trump administration trying to cut off Iran again. It's counting on the Saudis to make up some of the difference. But I'd say two things. One is the United States doesn't need Saudi Arabia nearly as much as it once did. And second of all, to the extent that the alliance is important, and I think a good alliance would be in the interest of both countries, it's not served by reckless, dangerous leadership that not only would countenance the murder of a journalist in its own diplomatic compound, but three years ago sponsored this invasion of Yemen, which has been disastrous, which very recklessly had this rupture with Qatar, which has not been in the interest of the Gulf countries in general. And so I think for the United States, this is an opportunity to say, okay, we do want an alliance. We do want a constructive alliance. But has have the policies of this Saudi regime 
serve that alliance or yeah, have they the, worked against But to US be fair, though, the Saudis do indeed supply Washington with counter-terrorism intelligence. And isn't that more important now than ever in the face of a rising Iran threat? Um, I'm, you know, there are always going to be trade-offs. And I'm sure um, some of the terrorism cooperation has been useful and is important. And, and our, some of our counter-terrorism officials, you know, would say it continues to be. At the same time, I think you have to look at uh, what are the policies that create more violence, create more terrorism in the long run if you have regimes that are creating new Syrias in Yemen. I mean, half of the population of Yemen right now uh, is at risk of malnutrition. There's a million people um, suffering from cholera. It's, you know, the worst, it's the worst humanitarian situation in the world. And it's created by uh, Saudi Arabian policies. What and about the Houthi rebels? They're backed by Iran. That is going to lead to more terrorism. What, what about the Houthi rebels? They're backed by Iran, though, right? They are backed... Well, first of all, they have been backed by Iran. I would say the Saudi policies over the last three years have... Uh, which were intended to prevent the Hezbollahization of Yemen, in fact, have accelerated the process. Mm -hmm. So Iran is more of a presence than it was. Now, you've written in the Washington Post that, quote, each year Saudi Arabia employs through consultants or otherwise a host of retired American generals, diplomats, intelligence experts and others. I think uh, Fred Trump's son-in-law, uh, Jared Kushner, I think he has close ties with the Crown Prince. Fred, is it possible to have an honest discussion about the U.S. relationship with the Saudis when so many American experts are, in in a way, on the Saudi payroll? That's a great question. Uh, and, you know, we've said that a lot of those experts, um, and, you know, there's retired generals, there's retired intelligence officials, and, you know, a lot of the folks I call and say, uh, could you write an op-ed about this? It turns out, well, I have a conflict of interest. I can't really do that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I would say, first of all, in the wake of this murder, a number of think tanks and companies and universities have chosen to cut or suspend their ties, uh, number one. And number two, you know, the early signs have been not entirely discouraging. I mean, there is a debate. There are a lot of people on the Hill who have said this is unacceptable. Um, and so, you know, I think it's possible that um, uh, this crime was so um, sort of beyond the pale um, that a lot of people who, you know, reasonably could tell themselves, oh, working for the Saudis is in the interest of both countries, now are really going to uh, look in the mirror and ask themselves if they can continue to do that. Fred, great to chat with you again, and uh, congratulations on all the Post editorials and op-ed pieces you've been publishing in the last month. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Fred Hyatt, he's the editorial page editor of the Washington Post and a colleague of Jamal Khashoggi. You're on RN. Well, Bill McMahon, do you remember him? Or if you're under 50, have you heard of him? He was a widely derided and disliked figure in our nation's politics. Many historians say he was our worst Prime Minister. He was PM in the early 1970s, before Gough Whitlam defeated him in the It's Time election. Disloyal, devious, dishonest, untrustworthy, petty, cowardly... 
Well, all these adjectives had been weighed by McMahon's Liberal Party colleagues, especially Paul Hasluck, who, in his words, could not in truth modify or reduce any of them in its application to McMahon. Now, Hasluck, he was the external relations minister in the 1960s, he went on to become governor general. He was among others who found McMahon, quote, a contemptible character. Here's McMahon's press secretary, John Gall's recollections of our 20th Prime Minister. Well, one of the things um, I remember um, working with Bill McMahon is we'd race everywhere in these huge black Commonwealth cars, car would stop, he'd leap out and shake hands with the nearest person. Two or three times a day, that person was his bodyguard. And here's one of McMahon's ministers, Peter Housen. He uh, became so conscious of trying to ring everybody up to find their points of view that uh, by the time he'd gone round and round the subject, he had forgotten what the uh, his real original viewpoint had been. And often it was the last person who, whom he rang who decided the issue. You never knew who was going to be the last person. However, McMahon was also a significant political figure, the longest-serving minister in the Commonwealth. 21 years, that was from 1951 to 1972. Treasurer, foreign minister and prime minister. A man whose life was coloured by tragedy, comedy, persistence, courage, farce and failure. Well, McMahon's story has never been told at length until now. Patrick Mullins is the author of the biography Tiberius with a Telephone, The Life and Stories of William McMahon. Patrick, great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. The prevailing wisdom is that McMahon was an inconsequential prime minister, a figure of fun. Why then did you decide to write a biography of him? This man had been prime minister, and yet we knew very little about him. In spite of that incredibly long career in spite of those portfolios, important portfolios, no one had really studied his career in depth or looked at why and how he got there, why and how he got to be Prime Minister. His one-dimensional reputation today for incompetence and failure suggested that this question couldn't really be answered. I wanted to answer that question. I wanted to find out what he said and did at the Cabinet table for 20 years. Uh, I wanted to engage with this huge sweep of Australian history that McMahon was participating in. So... Here's the book. Yeah, and the title, Tiberius with a Telephone. What's the story there? This, as with many good things, is a product of Whitlam. McMahon, in August 1971, moved to have John Gorton sacked as his deputy party leader. Uh, this was amid considerable tension. And while he was doing so, McMahon was telephoning all of his colleagues, the public service, journalists, backbenchers, trying to make sure that there was going to be enough support within the party for him to move against Gorton. In the following debate, after Gorton had been sacked, Whitlam got up and gave this excoriating speech about, um, about McMahon's conduct, about how he had handled this. And at the time, there was an adaptation of Robert Graves' novel, I, Claudius, being screened on telly. And so Whitlam seized on that and likened <laughs> McMahon. He said, sitting there on the Isle of Capri, plotting away at the Tiberius with a telephone. <laughs> and we should stress that Gorton, of course, was the Prime Minister before McMahon. McMahon knifed him in early 71, right? Correct. Absolutely correct. Now, and you write the book in the context of McMahon's failure to find someone, anyone, to write his memoirs. Tell us about his abiding frustration in getting his memoirs published. Well, this is an interesting story, I think, particularly in the context of today where prime ministers and politicians can get their messages and their stories out quite easily. 
From the moment he lost the 1972 election, McMahon was intent on writing his memoirs, and he really swung into it in full upon his retirement from the parliament in 1982. The thing is, McMahon had this inability to stitch together stories correctly, uh, to do so in a way that was going to captivate his audiences. And he churned through an industry, a veritable industry, of ghostwriters, journalists, academics, public servants, who would come in and try to wrestle together these series of speeches and brief aid memoirs into something that was going to be coherent. McMahon couldn't do it. His staff, his ghostwriters, they couldn't do it either. The gap between McMahon's recollection of events and events as they had been depicted and understood by others was too great. Yeah, I think he asked, among other people, my Radio National colleague, Philip Adams, if, if he could ghost-write them. <laughs> <laughs> this, and this thing, Adams is one of many people. Yeah, Mar- many Mark Latham's another, by the way. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, Mark Latham was working for Gough Whitlam, and they shared uh, the same office space uh, at Westfield Towers in the 1980s. And that's how McMahon got to know Latham. But, of course, Latham was a Labor guy. <laughs> At least he was then. <laughs> Would have made for an odd book. Now, listen, was, he a li- was McMahon a Liberal or a Conservative? This is an interesting point. When McMahon was first elected to office in, in the 1949 election, he was seen as something of a progressive Liberal. And as time went on, he became something of a Conservative, too. So particularly under John Gorton, the Conservative forces within the Liberal Party regarded McMahon as a Conservative namely because he was not wild about Gorton's willingness to gather power toward the Commonwealth. McMahon was very much in favour of diffusion of power, so states' rights. But in office, however, McMahon was something of a progressive in some ways. You know, he was really responsive to public opinion and to public yearning for change, particularly in, for example, urban and regional development. McMahon was also, to some extent, quite progressive on the question of homosexuality and abortion. Uh, But his critics long charged him as being a man of the 1950s. Donald Horne called him a man of the cafe set. Uh, And there is something to that. He was at once progressive, a little liberal at some times, but other times quite conservative. And his government created the Department of the Environment, correct? Yes, that's true. What about his attitude towards Vietnam? In the uh, mid-60s, you talk about at the early stages of military intervention, he did harbour some doubts about strategy, didn't he? He did. McMahon came into the Cabinet Committee uh, as Minister for Labour and National Service. He'd been in charge of conscription. And so he'd gotten onto this committee. And when the question of whether or not to commit Australian military forces to Vietnam was raised, McMahon joined with Paul Haslack in actually arguing against it, holding off for a little while until the American strategy for Vietnam actually became clear. That, that is fascinating. Yeah, so he had some doubts there. And in the lead up to the 66 election, this is the Harold Holt, Arthur Corwell established primarily over the Vietnam War, which the Liberals won that election in a landslide. You quote Peter Kelly, who's one of McMahon's advisers. He asked McMahon if he thought the Americans would truly ever come to Australia's aid in the event of an attack. And uh, you quote Kelly, McMahon sat back and thought, he paused, no, I don't. Now, that thinking, Patrick, that surely uh, contradicted the government mindset at the time that our contribution to Vietnam was the premium to be paid for the alliance, right? That's correct. And it's an, it's an astonishing kind of moment, to be honest with you, because in public, McMahon was arguing that Australia should be fighting in Vietnam, that we should be there. But at the same time, he's harbouring these private doubts. What became clear over time, particularly once McMahon moved into the foreign ministry and eventually into the prime ministership, was he saw that Vietnam was not just a military problem, it was also now a massive political problem as well. And this is partly why he acted to withdraw Australian combat troops from Vietnam by Christmas 1971. 
you just tuned in, you're on our ends between the lines with me, Tom Switzer, and now's as good a time as any to say that if I were to nominate my favourite political biography of 2018, it would be Tiberius with a Telephone. It's the first biography of William McMahon. The author, Patrick Mullins, is my guest. Putting the pressure on you now, Patrick. <laughs> Tell us about McMahon's relationship with the Country Party. We know them now, of course, as National Party, but the Country Party leaders, John McEwen and Doug Anthony, was this tension primarily over personality or policy? It started out over personality. Back in the very early 1950s, McMahon and McEwen uh, John McEwen, the Country Party leader, had quite an admiring relationship. McEwen thought quite highly of McMahon's industry and his application. But over time, that, that personality regard kind of ebbed. Uh, McEwen came to see McMahon as a leaker, as a grandstander, as someone who grabbed all the credit. And the policy problems eventually began to creep in, most notably at first when McMahon became Minister for Primary Industry, but then especially they became particularly acute once McMahon became Treasurer under Harold Holt in 1966. Doug Anthony said of, of McEwen that he had a complete disregard and distrust for McMahon. And though that disregard, that distrust manifested in their constant battles over the tariffs and protection, over the currency battles in 1967. And once McEwen, in fact, had retired, it actually carried on for Doug Anthony trying to deal with McMahon as well. They clashed spectacularly in December 1971 when Australia was having to reconsider whether or not to revalue the currency. You uh, quote McMahon when he announces his uh, resignation from Parliament in 1982, because, of course, McMahon stayed on as a backbencher for 10 years after he lost to Whitlam in 72. And you quote McMahon, quote, When John McEwen went mad on tariffs, I opposed him bitterly. It was one of the reasons he became a bitter enemy of mine. And we should stress that when Harold Holt drowned in late 67, McEwen, who was a country party leader, he vetoed McMahon to lead the Liberal Party, right? That's correct. That's correct. An astonishing turn of events. Amazing that the country party leader or the national party leader could have that kind of hold over the Liberal Party decision making. He absolutely cowed the Liberal Party into accepting this. There's some argument over this, over whether or not the Liberal Party would even have accepted McMahon as its leader, had McEwen not acted, but it certainly crueled McMahon's chances in 1967. Yeah, and with McEwen gone, I think he retired in 1970, the veto was gone and McMahon became Prime Minister. He was the first Liberal PM who had not come from Victoria, right? How significant was that? Incredibly significant, particularly when you consider the ideological changes that would result within the Liberal Party in the years that followed. Uh, McMahon came to office after Menzies, after Holt, after Gordon, Victorians all. Uh, and if you look at the leadership of the Liberal Party after that, you'll in fact see a pretty decided uh, swing toward New South Wales. Tell us about McMahon being spectacularly wrong-footed by Whitlam in July 1971. The question was China. This was a really astonishing thing. McMahon had been foreign minister and he had engaged with the question of whether or not to recognise the People's Republic of China, Communist China. He had held off for fear of angering the DLP, who had managed to knock off former External Affairs Minister Gordon Freeth in the 1969 election. McMahon, in office, knew that Australia had to deal with the problem of the People's Republic of China, whether or not to grant diplomatic recognition. He was, however, holding fast and thinking that he should follow the United States' lead, in spite of the fact that there were considerable and repeated warnings that the United States was not going to tell Australia what it was doing, it would inform Australia. It wouldn't consult, it would inform. And so when Whitlam went to China in July 1971 
and uh, met with Zhao Enlai, McMahon came out and said straight up, in no time at all, Zhao Enlai had Whitlam on a hook and played him as a fisherman plays a trout. Three days later, Nixon appeared on the television to say that Henry Kissinger had been meeting with Zhao Enlai and that Nixon hoped to visit China the next year. So it was Whitlam who'd, who had played McMahon as a fisherman plays a trout. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. What about, I mean, there's so much to talk about. There's splendid biography. It's nearly 800 pages. July 1972, Frank Packer, he sells the popular Daily Telegraph newspaper to Rupert Murdoch. Now, Packer was a conservative who had a pretty close relationship with McMahon. You document all of that. McMahon's was very worried, though, about Murdoch, because back then Murdoch was a Labor supporter who backed Gough Whitlam in 1972. Let's hear McMahon's wife, Sonia, reflect on that moment. When Frank sold the telegraph, he asked us up to his house, which is just up the road, when Rupert Murdoch was there, and they were actually signing the deal. Frank made Bill and Rupert shake hands, and Rupert guaranteed that he would correct any statements and etc that were incorrect and um, he gave a couple of guarantees which of course never happened. Yes, Bill knew that that was disaster as far as the election was concerned. That's Lady Sonia McMahon on the ABC's The Liberals documentary in 1994. Patrick, to what extent was uh, the news press uh, and Murdoch slanted against McMahon and the Liberals in 72? Uh, profoundly, profoundly against the Liberal Party in 1972. This was something that most, some people don't quite forget, that Rupert Murdoch was not always in favour of the Liberals. But in this case, he swung hard for Whitlam, he put his papers behind it, and McMahon was well aware of the damage that it was doing and the problem that it was causing. He almost had a fist fight, in fact, with one of Murdoch's reporters on the Hobart runway during the campaign. But it's really telling, I think, that this vital support that all of the political leaders, that all of the Liberal Party's leaders before McMahon had enjoyed, Menzies, Holt, Gorton, you know, right at the end, right at the moment when McMahon needed that help most, it was gone. Frank Packer had gone, and suddenly the Daily Telegraph, which had been for so long an ally and a reliable supporter, was no more, an avowed enemy by that point. And the remarkable thing was that Whitlam did not win a convincing victory over McMahon in that December 1972 election. It was its time. He had the support of Murdoch. Why was it relatively close? I think in part it was because of McMahon's willingness and to engage on some of these big questions and some of the things that the public was showing a clear appetite for change on, namely, say, for example, urban and regional development. Another part of it was McMahon's effective campaigning. He campaigned widely. He managed to get around the country. And, you know, the margin of victory by the end was only nine seats. Whitlam emerged from that election with a majority of nine seats. And people forget that only a couple of thousand votes spread the right way would actually have seen the Liberal Party retain government. Yeah, well, there is a lot of mythology about Whitlam. We should stress that although Whitlam won in 72 and 74, he lost huge landslides to Malcolm Fraser in 75 and 77. Okay, finally, lasting legacies of Bill McMahon. Patrick. In one respect, McMahon's most lasting legacy is as a salutary example for other politicians to recognise that even though amorality in politics can be a problem, that character flaws of the magnitude, the kind of manipulation, the meddling, the leaking, that, that those will come to define you to some extent. He's known as Australia's worst prime minister. To some extent, it's unfair, but at the same time, there's pretty good reason for it as well. Yeah. Patrick, it's been great to have you on Between the Lines. Let's uh, let's keep talking into the future. 
Thanks very much, Tom. Patrick Mullins is author of Tiberius with a Telephone, The Life and Stories of William McMahon. That's just published by Scribe. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. And remember, if you've missed anything, just go to our website to find back issues. And make sure you tune in next week for our coverage of the US midterm elections and the centenary of what? Remembrance Day. That's on Between the Lines next week. I'm Tom Switzer. Speak then. Speak then.